Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist with me, your host, Simon. I'm here, one of my writers, in this case, brand new writer. Welcome. Rounds of applause, please, for Harrison. Welcome, welcome. And he's told, he's telling us about Harvey Miguel Robinson, the 17-year-old serial killer. I'm like starting off my Wednesday morning with a serial killer by the time there's... What is the definition of a serial killer? It's three or more, right? But not like in a mass shooting or like mass murder event. Like it's like three separate victims at separate events, right? Is that the definition? Is there a definition? Anyway, let's jump into it, shall we? The format of the show is I've never read this before. We're going to explore it together, dear audience. So let's go. Hello, Simon. <laughs> Hello, Harrison. <laughs> As this is my first script for you, I feel like I'd keep things more professional, less quips than I normally would. Okay. Generally, I'm like, my general feedback to, to, to my writers who write these things is don't try to be necessarily funny. Just write about funny things because like, I, I don't come up with any of... <laughs> Like, Simon, do you come up with these jokes ahead of time? <laughs> no, because then they'd be like not terrible. But it's like trying to be funny is never like... Uh, it's never that funny. Like, I always find it just a bit cringe. Unless someone's genuinely like extremely funny. But I think there's like maybe three people like that in the world. <laughs> Let's just go. So, no long introductions, no bad jokes, more CSI than saw. Buckle in, though, because this one's interesting. And it's not actually too bad when you compare it to other cases that you've had before. Aside from a 17-year-old serial killer, Harrison, how not bad can it be? He's 17 and he's murdering. And also, we have a brand new rule about committing crimes as well. Always, always like that. So let's start with the real good part of the case, the chapter that led to the arrest of the killer. Okay. <laughs> What are we mementoing this? Just start at the end. <laughs> On July the 18th, 1993, the police force of Allentown, Pennsylvania, stationed an armed officer in the home of Denise Sam Kelly. This was in response to a previous sexual assault on Denise, along with a subsequent break-in attempt. Law enforcement, that's some good policing. Jesus, I like that. Like, if someone, if, if someone committed a crime on me, it's like, yeah, we're just going to station a police officer outside your house for a while. I'm mean, like, whoa, thanks, guys. <laughs> Tax money at work, let's go. Law enforcement believed that there was a connection between these two events and wanted to ensure that they could apprehend the attacker if they returned for a third time. Does seem likely, doesn't it? It's like, well done, police. You really put that together. A woman has been a victim of two weird crimes in a short space of time. Maybe it's the same person. Brilliant detective work, Sherlock. Twelve days into this, on July the 31st, Officer Brian Lewis was on guard duty. In the darkness, he scanned his surroundings. Suddenly, amidst the silence of the sleeping home, the sound of a kitchen window breaking shattered the air. It's very dramatic, isn't it? Officer Lewis, one of the legends of today's case, sprang into action, drawing his service revolver. He spotted the assailant and ordered him to halt. His weapon aimed at the intruder. Depleting his own ammunition. Oh my god, here we go. Depleting. How many ra Like, I feel like it's either 7 or 14 for some reason, in like a policeman's gun. So he's just like, back, 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 back. <laughs> Holy shit. It's like, I know this guy's there to protect people and stuff, but it does seem like American police officers use their guns a lot. And like, I don't know, I we, I, we, it's in the international press, like, oh yeah, no, it turns out he was at arms. <laughs> they just shot him to death. And like, not to draw, like, maybe these are the ones that get the more press coverage. But it does seem like, when you look at the population of America, it does seem like a lot more like minorities. <laughs> well done, Simon, big brain. Like the minorities, at least 
while I read the paper tend to get shot a little bit more, which is weird because they're a minority. They make up less of the population. It's right there in the definition. It's all a bit weird, isn't it, in America? Maybe less shooty-shooty. Officer Lewis managed to wound the intruder, forcing him to flee through the shattered window. Within two hours, the assailant was tracked down and identified. It sought treatment at a nearby hospital for his injuries, which aligns with the rule I mentioned earlier. Don't seek medical attention after injuring yourself committing a crime unless you're about to die. Well, Harrison, to be fair, he did get shot. But with how bad were his injuries? Oh, we don't say. That's, I mean, look, he's going, if you get shot, you've got to go to hospital or you've got to like find a mob doctor. But then how do you find a mob doctor? I was like, if I need a mob doctor, it's, it's always that thing. Like I've brought, brought this up before. You find your dodgiest friend and you ask them who their dodgiest friend is. And you ask that dodgiest friend, who's a mob doctor? Because I need this bullet removed quickly. But I feel like that's going to take at least a couple of days. So you're going to be like, ah, oh, just got to go to the hospital. They definitely asked me why I got, how I got shot. The police are definitely going to arrive, and then it's going to, well, I was breaking a kitchen window, wasn't I? And they're like, prison for you, boy. The perpetrator, an 18-year-old named Harvey Miguel Robinson, was apprehended and taken into custody. There, he recounted the entire dreadful story. Childhood. All right, so let's learn a bit more about Harvey. Okay, our memento moment's over. We're getting back to the start. Harvey Robinson was born on 6th of December 1974 to Harvey Rodriguez Robinson and Barbara Brown. His father, much like the others we've discussed, was an abusive alcoholic. Oh, shocking. He became a murderer? And he has a history of abuse? What? Never. Who would have thought this? Don't f*** up your kids. It's like rule number three. Throughout his childhood, Robinson suffered regular abuse during his father's drunken rampages. Strangely, despite this mistreatment, he formed a strong attachment to his father, almost idolizing him. Wow, and that's also not, that's also not good. How's that work? How's that work? If, if my dad was a piece of sh, I'd be like, no, he's a piece of sh. I love my dad, because he's awesome. But it's like, yeah, because he's awesome. He wasn't an abusive alcoholic. Why are you like, oh, I love my dad. He was so abusive. <laughs> like, what the f People are so fucked up. Eleven years before the birth of his son, Robinson Sr. was convicted of the voluntary manslaughter of Marlene Perez, a 27-year-old woman with whom Robinson was having an affair. He received a sentence of 6 to 12 years. After being released after only seven, he married voluntary manslaughter. Oh no. Seven years? Voluntary manslaughter is like just a hair's breadth away from murdering, isn't it? It's like, oh yeah, well you killed him and you meant to kill him. So why is that not murder again? I know there's a reason, but it is like... <laughs> right up there, isn't it? It's right up there with the big bad crimes. Seven years, you had a good lawyer. After being released after only seven, he married Barbara Brown and fathered- Oh wait, this is the dad! The dad was voluntary- I thought we were talking about the main subject of today's video. But the abusive alcoholic dad was in prison for voluntary manslaughter. Oh my god, no wonder your kid's up. Bro. He fathered a son, Harvey Jr. I did try to find why he was released early, but I was unable to get a concise answer. My best guess would be good behavior. During the younger Robinson's upbringing, he had several encounters with the police, starting with a shoplifting charge at the age of nine. The age of criminal responsibility varies from state to state, with the youngest being six in North Carolina. Six North Carolina? Why? Yeehaw! Like, my kid's like nearly four. The idea that they could understand the concept of shoplifting at six is wild. Like, oh, well, we were just in the store and she took some sh. They'll be like, well, she's gonna get arrested. <laughs> like, what the fuck? She's six? Can I just pay for it? Tell her not to do it again? I think the age of criminal responsibility in the UK is 12, which seems. Still pretty low, but like, man, and also obviously it's not going to be the same as if you were like 22, but it's like that feels a lot more reasonable than six North Carolina. What are you up to? 
His involvement in petty crimes persisted until he was placed in a residential reform program in 1989 at the age of 15. That same year, his father passed away due to cirrhosis of the liver, <laughs> a consequence of the alcoholism. What? It was? Never. The Town I thought that it would be helpful to provide a brief overview of Allentown. Credit to Matt for the idea to set the scene for today's episode. I like that all the writers talk to each other <laughs> in the basement. Simon, feel free to add your best ad read voice for this. Oh, okay, here we go. What we did a promo for Allentown. Visit Allentown today. Allentown stands as Pennsylvania's third largest urban area after Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. Nestled comfortably along the Lehigh River, it offers an affordable cost of living, a plethora of enjoyable and family-friendly activities, a robust public transport system, and a vibrant vibrant sports culture. <laughs> I don't know what accent I'm doing. It's like some weird ass American accent. You know, like, you know, uh, side effects include. <laughs> I just watched that incredible TV show um, about the Sacklers. What the f was it called? Prescription or something? Prescribed? About Oxycontin. Uh, it's on Netflix. It's so good. It's so worth to watch. And it's got that guy from Ferris Bueller in. He's like, I was like, I know the actor. And then I was just like reading about it. I was like, oh my God, it was Ferris Bueller. Like as an adult. Really good. Really excellent. It's one of those things where you're like, oh, there's there's, there's just no redeeming features in the bad. You know, like when you watch like a an action movie or any movie and there's like the bad guy, the villain. And you're like, well, you know, he always has some sort of humanity to him, some sort of redeeming feature because that makes like a more believable villain. So you're more invested in the story. And in this one, it's like, no, 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 they're just pieces of shit. And it's hard to get engaged in a way because you're like, they have no redeeming qualities. They're just evil pieces of shit, allegedly, according to this TV show. And you're just watching it and, I, and I'm like, oh yeah, because it's real. <laughs> in real life, villains don't necessarily have like a redeeming quality. It's just the fucking Sacklers, isn't it? He got a very, uh, uh, allegedly. No, didn't they go to court about this? I don't know. I'm just going to say allegedly just in case. He got America addicted to like what Netflix calls like heroin in a pill. Canal. What a crazy story. Absolutely worth a watch. This episode brought to you by Netflix. It's not, but it could be. Netflix, hello. Want a slimy little money? Or just comp my Netflix account. It gets really expensive when you pay for like the 4K. Okay, I'm not going to do my ad read voice for the rest of it. On the flip side, challenges include harsh weathers, toll roads, and <laughs> challenges. Oh, I'm so challenged by this toll roads. It challenged me for $2. At pertinent to our current case, an above average crime rate, 28 incidents per thousand residents, whereas the national average stands at 16.5 per thousand as of 2021. Interestingly, particular for this case, Allentown boasts the lowest murder rate in Pennsylvania and has earned recognition as the ninth best city to retire in. I've never heard of Allentown. I've never heard of Pennsylvania. No, I've heard of Pennsylvania. Is Pennsylvania the one of those ones in the northeast where it's like they're all crammed together like the rest of the earth is nicely spread out they got some space and then you go into the northeast it's like boom how many states can we fit in here I'm looking it up where is pennsylvania it's gonna be like next to texas or some shit isn't it pennsylvania <laughs> no it is oh it's big though oh no it's not it's just zoomed in a lot oh it's one of those ones like crammed in the top right not quite as crammed as the other ones it's not small it's like a similar size to georgia i've been to georgia it's quite large Okay, let's get back to it. While also securing a spot among the 25 safest places to reside in the nation. And yes, I know this sounds like a huge contradiction, but I suppose if most criminals are going to shoplift and not murder, it would be considered pretty safe. It's like, yeah, high crime, just not violent crime. Just like people stealing sh**. <laughs> Although that doesn't sound like a nice place, because if people are stealing sh**, it means they don't have enough sh**, which means that there's not like enough support, right? Because they're not all just kleptomaniacs stealing for fun. They're usually stealing because they're hungry or some sh**, which isn't great. It's not great. 
The Murders. Within the span of a year, Robinson would attack five individuals, ending the lives of three. Okay, so I guess three is the burden for serial killers. His arrest and charges occurred when he was just 17 years old, making him one of the youngest to be sentenced to death row. Oh, spoiler alert, okay. <laughs> Robinson's first victim was Joan Mary Burkhart, a 29-year-old nurse aide who lost her life on the 7th of August 1992 through a brutal bludgeoning. Prior to her death, she endured a horrifying sexual assault and suffered over 30 blows from an unidentified weapon. However, in the spirit of this exceptional channel, it's important to recognize that Joan was far more than the tragic circumstances of her end. She was a live individual. She had aspirations, dreams, cherished relationships, and her entire life lying ahead. Born in 1963, Joan was an aspiring nurse who had a deep love for music. Throughout her high school years, she maintained an impressive academic record and was described as an exceptionally caring individual with plenty of friends. Tragically, this young woman's life was abruptly cut short by a man whose only motive seemed to be a sinister desire to kill. Joan Burgard's lifeless body was discovered two days after her demise on August the 9th. Adding to the heartache, just three days prior to her death, she had reported a burglary. Subsequent evidence suggests that Robinson was likely the culprit behind the break-in at Joan's residence before her murder. When found, her body was partially undressed, clad in only a sleep shirt and shorts that had been torn and pulled up, leaving her lower half unclothed. The scene presented a disturbing tableau. An open dresser drawer with black shorts strewn on the floor, exhibiting traces of blood and semen on their backside. Additionally, a peach-colored shirt hanged from the nearest door, its fabric covered in blood splatter. Joan bore defensive wounds, a testament to her resistance even when confronted in such a vulnerable state. Her strength wasn't enough to thwart Robinson's assault, and the force of the attack was so severe that her hair became embedded in the fracture marks on her skull. Forensic analysis determines the murder weapon to be a circular cylindrical object approximately half to three quarters of an inch, roughly two centimeters in diameter and roughly 10 to 20 inches or 25 to 50 centimeters in length. This pointed to a piece of household furniture as the likely weapon. Joan left behind grieving parents and two older siblings. On June the 9th, Charlotte Schmoyer, a 15-year-old newspaper delivery girl, was abducted, sexually assaulted, and then stabbed 22 times. Her disappearance had been noticed by one of her regular newspaper customers, who saw her car parked outside for an extended period. The newspaper office was contacted, and the arm was raised when Charlotte couldn't be located. Tragically, her body was discovered only hours later near the east side reservoir. Unlike the norm on this channel, where it usually takes days or even weeks for such disappearances to be taken seriously by the police and the victims are kept alive for a portion of that time, here the alarm went off immediately and the police, along with volunteers, searched the area. Despite the prompt response, Charlotte's body was still found too late. Charlotte Schmoyer was born November 8, 1977, described as an enthusiastic and loyal friend. Her smile would light up the room as soon as she entered. Following a tragic incident, the entire community came together to support her grieving family. Hundreds of students from neighboring schools distributed black ribbons in remembrance of her. It took 11 days for Robinson to break into the home of an unnamed woman. Once inside, he noticed his original target asleep in bed with her boyfriend. Deciding to change his plan, he stealthily entered the bedroom shared by a five-year-old girl and a younger sister. However, on that night, the girl was alone. Robinson seized the girl, sexually assaulted her. She's five. What the f***? and attempted to end her life by choking her. Thankfully, the girl survived. Police later suspected that Robinson had stalked the mother for days before the attack. I've chosen to keep the names of these victims private. Good. On July the 14th, one month after Charlotte's murder, Robinson claimed his final victim, Jessica Jean Fortney, a 47-year-old grandmother. Jesus, this guy is just like, normally, like, you see these in the casual criminalist episodes or whatever, or, you know, just crimes in general, you're like, well, they find, you know, it's always like, it's always the same victim profile or similar victim profiles. This guy's like, no, I don't care if she's a 47-year-old grandmother or a five-year-old child. Jesus Christ. 
Her daughter and son-in-law discovered her beaten and strangled. She had sustained 50 different injuries, many of which were consistent with fists. Some of these injuries suggested the use of a ring, or rings by the assailants. There were additional wounds with spatter patterns indicating that Jessica had been forced onto her knees during the attack, causing blood to splatter on the wall, lampshade, and even the assailant himself. Subsequent tests revealed that she had been sexually assaulted before her death. Jessica was a devoted grandmother and mother. She lived with her daughter, son-in-law, and their four children, her grandchildren. Finally, there is one last suspected victim, and Simon, it's important to know that this information is considered alleged because it has not been proven in court, and Robinson is still alive. In 1990, it's believed that Robin... He's got to be in prison, though, right? <laughs> Wasn't he? Oh, he's on... Didn't they say he was... Didn't, didn't uh, Harrison say he was sentenced to death row? Right? Okay, he's still alive. How long for... How long for, Mr. Robinson? In 1990, it's believed that Robinson attempted to assault and murder 13-year-old Leslie Gerhardt. On the evening in question, Leslie had a friend over. Leslie spotted a man in the bedroom window removing the screen. He entered the room before she could react and proceeded to attack her with a brick. Fortunately for Leslie, her friend heard the noise and started screaming loudly, which frightened the attacker away. He managed to escape through the same window. Despite suffering a shattered hand and a fractured skull, Leslie made a complete recovery. Once more, it's worth noting that while it's believed this incident might have been Robinson's initial murder attempt, he was never charged with the crime, let alone convicted. The Trial On January the 6th, 1994, Robinson was charged with breaking and entering, burglary, aggravated assault, attempted murder, and murder. These charges related to Joan Mary Burkhart, Charlotte Schmoyer, Jessica Jean Fortney, and Denise Sam Calley, minus the murder charge. There would be a separate trial for the assault and attempted murder of the five-year-old girl. During the preliminary hearing, 18 witnesses were called against Robinson. Despite a different trial occurring for her, Denise Sam Cowley would testify in this hearing. Robert Steinberg, the district attorney, would lead the prosecution with Robinson being defended by David Nichols. Nichols would, almost immediately, contest the validity of the DNA evidence against his clients, which was a common tactic in the early days of DNA evidence. Yeah, when it was back in the day, people didn't really understand it properly, and they're like, oh, it could be wrong. <laughs> And now it's like, oh no, that's what we need. That's what's going to get you the chair. Yes. Another DNA-related obstacle for the prosecution was how they could simplify such a complicated topic for the jury. As we brought up in previous episodes, you can have the most airtight case possible, but can lose the entire trial if the jury can't understand the evidence. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's a group of peers and all the lawyers in the room, they're like, <laughs> quite bright. <laughs> they went to like university for many years. And I'm like, jury, why don't you understand it? Come on, it's DNA. I get that it's complicated, but we spelled it out with like little clay figurines for you. And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> oh yeah, jury of your peers and your peers are a little bit dim. <laughs> Harold Deadman, a supervisory special agent for the FBI, put the collected DNA through rigorous testing with other specimens collected from various men in the area who had a history of sex crimes. However, it was only the DNA from Robinson that matched the victims. Oh my God, that is a slam fucking dunk. Like, if this was happening today, I'd be like, do we even need to go to court? Because, holy sh**, dude, <laughs> it's locked in. Your blood and your semen was found all over the crime scenes, and we know it's yours because we match the DNA. 100%, 100% accurate. There's no shot it's not. And he's like, oh, I don't know, my blood and semen got all over those crime scenes. No one else's DNA was found there. <laughs> You're going to prison. You're or maybe to the death penalty. The Pennsylvania Police Lab also confirmed this through their own tests. Still, the prosecution had to find a way to explain to the jury this in a simple but concise manner. How hard could it be? Hey, jury, what's up? It's your lawyer, Simon. What I'm going to do, look, there's this stuff. It's called blood. It's found all over the crime scene. What we can do is we can look inside this blood with a magical big mirror and we can see this code. And the jury's like, okay, cool, blood. It's got this code. And this code is completely unique. 
Okay, now what we need to do is we need to go over to this dude Robinson. We took blood out of his body using a knife, and we looked at that under a really big magnifying glass as well, and it matched. The code was exactly the same. Boom! Jury, how can you not understand it? I explained it like it's for a particularly intelligent golden retriever. Come on! I rest my case. D.A. Steinberg told Denise that Robinson would accept a guilty plea in return for no trial and a reduced sentence. Denise, reduced sentence, bro. You killed many people. Denise, to the surprise of a nobody, refused to accept this at first. Although it is up to the defense attorney as to whether they accept a plea bargain, Steinberg felt that Denise should at least be aware of what was going on. In real terms, her agreeing to the terms or not was irrelevant. On the 13th of April, though, she would change her mind. In a two-hour hearing, she would identify Robinson as her attacker, with the story matching the one told by the DNA evidence. Another smoking gun, literally, was the gun collection of Denise's husband, which had been stolen during the initial break-in, and Robinson was found to have one of those guns in his possession. Bro, you're leaving your DNA everywhere, taking a fucking souvenir which can be traced. It's a gun. There's like that rifling on the barrels or whatever they do. They know. They've got serial numbers. They're fucking guns, mate. Come on. And also, there's eyewitnesses, which is the least reliable testimony, but it's still eyewitnesses. Jury's going to love that shit. It's like, okay, okay. I don't know how I can explain it more simply to the jury than like the code with the blood thing. But it's like, hey, jury, don't worry. We've got an eyewitness. And they're like, oh, I understand eyewitness. I understand that. That person saw the crime. That's more reliable than DNA. (sighs) Jury is so dumb. Lastly, Officer Lewis, remember him? Nope. Sorry, Harrison, I don't remember him. Also testified that Robinson was the man who'd fought with in the, at the Sam Cali residence. Oh, is that the guy in our cold open? The guy who emptied his clip into this dude and then he went to the hospital. During this hearing, Robinson himself had nothing to say, with even his attorney calling nobody to speak for the accused. <laughs> Despite his own mother and half-sister being in the courtroom. Defense attorney Nichols, they're like, nah, he did it. Nah, he did it. I was having a, I went out for dinner with my wife yesterday. We were talking about how, uh, like, I don't know when this will go up, but like Russell Brands. Uh, is he a big deal in America as well? His like accusations have come out as like, you know, me too, just a little bit late. And I don't know, I always felt there was something a little bit off about Russell Brands. And you know how those people you just get that psycho feeling from? And we were talking about this and this guy's like, yeah, his mum's sitting there in the quorum and she, she's like, no, nah, I just always got that psycho feeling from him. You always get, you know where someone's just off and you're just like, what's that? <laughs> like whether it's like person you know in real life whether it's a person you see on tv maybe it's me and you're like that person's a little bit off something's wrong with them i think they're a secret psycho or they've got like they've got like a dark soul or some sh- like that you know what i mean and his mum's just like yeah yeah my son's got that i'm not surprised and it's our sister's like yeah 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 he does it's like the, the sort of person who it's like if someone came to you it's like oh my god did you hear that john murdered someone you'd be like i didn't hear it but yeah, I mean, I get it. I, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's John. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Defense attorney Nichols argued that Robinson had been always been a troubled youth growing up in a very difficult situation, yet he could offer no motive for his client's crimes. Following the hearing, the DA would tell the press, he, Robinson, is everything that evil is in society, all rolled up in one person. Denise agreed, being quoted as saying, put him away for good, he should die for what he did. Nichols, however, asked the court for leniency, suggesting the possibility that Robinson could be rehabilitated. (laughs) Bro, he sexually assaulted and tried to murder a five-year-old. Let's let's just uh, put him in a prison and throw away the key because he's not getting rehabilitated. 
That guy. Let's rehabilitate him with death. Steinberg would reject this, countering that Robinson already had a long juvenile record and that he made threats against the other prisoners he was held with. Ah, it's not looking good for you. Additionally, Steinberg said Robinson had fought against the rules and shown aggression to others since the first grade, even committing his first crime at nine. Each and every time he was released from juvenile detention, he would simply commit more crimes and refuse to take accountability for his actions. This, he said, proved that rehabilitation was almost impossible for the man. For the sexual assault, burglary, and shooting of a police officer, oh yay, shot a cop! Ah! Robinson received a sentence of 40 to 80 years in state prison. And they haven't even touched the murder yet. After this was handed down, Nichols would step aside, leaving the murder charges to a public defender. All the while reporters were frantically searching for more information on Robinson, the case had gripped the media. On the hook for murder. Robinson's public defender was a woman named Carmen Marinelli. She would soon make a request to split the three murder charges into three separate trials. Additionally, she motioned for a change of venue, arguing that Robinson was unable to receive a fair trial due to the publicity that his case was producing. D.A. Steinberg, however, was pushing for a single trial given the almost identical nature of the three crimes. It's weird that they put them all into one, though, isn't it? Because it's like they're all separate crimes. I guess then they're like guilty of this, not guilty of that, guilty of that. That, uh, that kind of makes sense, like, for efficiency's purposes. Like, when someone's, like, done loads of crimes. Like, the, the white-collar stuff, like, the Theranos thing I always think about. And it's like, yeah, not guilty of this, not guilty of that, guilty of this, not guilty of that, guilty of that, guilty of that. And it's like, okay, yeah, because we needed to, like, get this done, otherwise the trial's going to be on forever. To bolster his argument, he calls Stephen Etter, an FBI analyst, in to explain that Robinson met the indicators of a serial killer with a sexual motive. <laughs> Again, he no sh- the judge would be convinced, and Allentown would hold one trial for all three murder charges. James Burke, another defense attorney, would join Robinson's team. In this trial, the prosecution would call 50 witnesses to the stand, with each of them being there to testify that Robinson had perpetrated all three murders. 50 witnesses? Dude, I don't know if we've ever seen an episode of Casual Criminals where the guy, could you be more fucked? You're already in prison for 40 to 80 years, and now it's just like, oh, there's 50 witnesses coming forward for three murders. You're cooked, mate. At this point, though, the defense was still yet to offer a proper strategy. According to pre-trial notes, they had the choice of a handful of arguments. Robinson had not committed the murders, the DNA evidence was unreliable, or a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. For this last idea, a psychiatrist determined that Robinson was mentally competent enough to stand trial, having shown no indication that he suffered from mental illness. The defense, however, still had not given a report from their own psychiatrist. Investigators not only found blood and semen, but also a shoe imprint on a victim's face that matched Robinson's footwear. Additionally, hair strands connected to Robinson were discovered on Charlotte, one of the victims. Denise, who testified at the trial, firmly identified him as the assailant. Notably, Robinson chose not to testify, despite advice from his attorney. Dude, like, <laughs> is they're trying to get him off, and it's like, you got to cop a deal. Like, that deal might just be not death. Like, that's what you've got. Like, you've got to, the deal is life in prison that's the only deal that you're hoping for because you're going to prison forever or you're getting the death penalty you gotta like and we know he gets the death penalty right although he's still alive and this was a long time ago so oh god is it one of those states where they're like oh no 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 we're not gonna kill him anymore like manson fucking charles manson he was sentenced to death and then california were like oh we're not doing that anymore and it's like can't we just just for manson it's fucking charles manson come on just for him let's make an exception governor Dr. Robert Sadoff, a forensic psychiatrist, provided testimony on behalf of the defense. He elucidated that Robinson battled with drug and alcohol addiction alongside an antisocial personality disorder which played a pivotal role in his actions. Yes, fine. He still murdered people, didn't he? It's like, ah, oh, he's addicted to alcohol. It's like, yes, so are many people. 
addicted to drugs so are many people antisocial personalities so are many people most of those people don't murder anybody do they According to Dr. Sadov, Robinson grappled with both auditory and visual hallucinations, which, when coupled with his substance abuse issues, significantly contributed to his criminal conduct. Shockingly, Dr. Sadov even posited the idea that Robinson may have turned to murder as a means of relieving stress, a notion that understandably elicits deep revulsion. <laughs> yeah, no sh. It's like, so what do you do to unwind? Oh, you know, love doing the crosswords, a little bit of golf, murder. <laughs> <laughs> in his testimony, Dr. Sadoff stressed that individuals of a younger age grappling with these conditions were at a heightened risk of engaging in juvenile delinquency and exhibiting aggression. You know what else really stress? I don't know. Take up smoking. <laughs> I don't know. It's the only time you'd be like, yeah, so you're young and you're a bit stressed out. Smoking. Have a beer. <laughs> Chill out. <laughs> It'll be fine. Smoke a little ganja. Furthermore, he put forth the notion that early intervention and treatment... <laughs> I don't, I'm not actually recommending these things. It's just a joke, because those things, while bad, are better than murdering people to relieve your stress. Furthermore, he put forth the notion that early intervention and treatment in structured environments might hold the potential to aid in the rehabilitation of young offenders. Nevertheless, during cross-examination, he did concede that Robinson could indeed be categorized as a serial killer, given his involvement in multiple acts of murder. Testifying in court in support of Robinson were his half-sister, cousin, and a close friend, all of whom depicted him as inherently good but burdened by a tumultuous upbringing. Oh, okay. So they did, like, in this, I, I was making the jokes about whether he's, like, you know, he's got that psycho vibe. <laughs> like, and, but his mum's still not testifying for him. But his half-sister is in this trial, which is weird. I don't know, like, it'd be really hard, like, <laughs> just imagine if my sister... <laughs> <laughs> was like, oh, what's happened? Oh, well, she's been arrested for multiple murders. And I'll be like, oh my God. <laughs> she didn't have that psycho vibe at all. Would I testify in court saying that she never seemed like a psycho, even if there's like DNA evidence? I mean, I don't know. It seems pretty clear she murdered three people. I'd be like, she always seemed nice, but the DNA, <laughs> the DNA, you murdered someone. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> They highlighted that Robinson's father battled alcoholism and had a criminal record, while his older brother, George Robbins, had also encountered legal issues. Intriguingly, George Robbins asserted that both he and Robinson had embraced Islam and were deeply committed to principles of modesty and harmony, making a heartfelt plea to the court for clemency. In his closing statement, Marinelli underscored that the jury should refrain from letting sympathy for the victims impact their decision regarding whether Robinson should face the death penalty. In contrast, during his closing statement, D.A. Steinberg passionately advocated for the death penalty, declaring, If there ever was a case where the death penalty was warranted, this is that case. Boom! Case closed! He presented four compelling, aggravating circumstances, multiple victims, murders committed during other felonies, torture of the victims, substantiated by the pathologist's report, and a history of violence and other threats. Look, if you're a serial killer who tortures their victims, I'm totally fine with you being put to death. Like, like, there's no debate. Like, that's fine. I'm totally fine with this. Like, honestly, I'll just put you to death for sexually assaulting a five-year-old girl. The problem with the death penalty is like when you're not sure, but it's like, bro, that DNA evidence, like his blood was everywhere. And they know it's his blood. Right, right. Get that needle in his arm ASAP. Let's not wait six years. Just let's take him out back and shoot him. I'm thirsty for blood. Steinberg asserted that Robinson undeniably posed a significant danger to society, reinforcing his argument with the display of nine graphic photos of his victims. He concluded with a potent statement urging the jury to consider, say to yourselves, he was lost a long time ago. There is no justification for sparing him in this courtroom. After a three-week trial, Robinson was convicted of the assault and murders of Joan Mary Burkhart, Charlotte Schmoyer, and Jessica Jean Fortney. Following the verdict, the jury was isolated and sequestered to deliberate on whether Robinson should be sentenced to death. 
Given the heinous nature of his crimes, the specter of the death penalty cast a somber shadow over his case. Yes, Simon, here in the US, the jury does decide whether or not to give the death penalty, not just the judge. Yeah, I feel like I learned that in a previous episode. On November 10th, with nearly two dozen deputies forming a circle around him in the courtroom, Harvey Miguel Robinson was sentenced to death by lethal injection. The relatives of the victims wept in a mix of emotions, finding some relief in the verdict, while Robinson's mother stared at her son with eyes filled with tears. In a touching detail, newspapers later recounted that during their deliberations, the jurors had risen from their seats, clasped hands, and recited a prayer together, seeking guidance to arrive at the right decision. Um, I don't know if that's a touching detail. To me, that's fucking weird. If I was in that room, I'd be like, guys, what are we doing? <laughs> I don't believe in the sky god. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not listen to the magical man in the sky for guidance. Let's use our logical brains and decide whether they're going to kill him or not. <laughs> also, all forgiving gods or whatever is like, nah, can kill him. Because <laughs> they were like, yeah, we prayed. And the message from God was death. Six months later, Robinson's already extensive criminal record grew with two more convictions, one for the sexual assault and attempted murder of a five-year-old, leading to an additional 57 years in prison, and another for a shootout with Officer Lewis, resulting in a 40-year sentence. Although, like, this guy's attempted murder and sexual assault of a five-year-old, like, how long's he gonna, he, how long's he gonna survive in prison anyway? <laughs> Maybe he's, like, oh, he's still alive, isn't he? Oh, what the f***? Why hasn't someone killed this f***er yet? In the immediate aftermath, Denise Sam Cowley's story served as the inspiration for a television movie titled No One Could Protect Her. Meanwhile, the families of the other victims sought to move forward with their lives as best they could, taking comfort in the fact that justice had been served to the man who had cruelly taken their loved ones away from them. But was justice truly served? With the death penalty imposed, Robinson was entitled to automatic appeals, and as the process unfolded, new opportunities for his defense would emerge. Oh no! Oh no, don't give him appeals! I don't want him to have any appeals. I just want him to be killed. Appeals and wrap up. Following his sentencing, Robinson believed that his two trial attorneys had not sufficiently emphasized the importance of him testifying in his defense. He contended that this omission had detrimentally affected his chances of a fair trial and asserted his right to address the matter. Consequently, he filed a request for a hearing to present his case for a new trial on these grounds. In contrast, Marinelli consistently maintained that she had indeed made efforts to persuade Robinson to testify, but he had consistently declined to do so. In November 1998, Robinson, how is he still alive? This is happening in 1998. Oh, North Carolina, don't tell me you suspended the death penalty, please. North Carolina, you're one of those states, right? You're a bit yeehaw. Let's, come on. I think you'd still have the death penalty on the books. In November 1999, he acquired a new attorney, Philip Lauer, to contest his convictions. One of the pivotal arguments put forth was that Denise Sam Cowley's recollection of a sexual assault had allegedly been shaped by detectives through hypnosis. I don't give a sh**. There's DNA. Lara contended that this should have resulted in the dismissal of her testimony. Furthermore, he raised procedural concerns, including the fact that the hypnotist possessed prior knowledge of assault details even before Sam Cali underwent hypnosis. This raised a troubling prospect that certain details she recalled might have been suggested by the hypnotist, possibly leading to the formation of false memories. Agreed. Which is why we just have to ignore eyewitness testimony. It's just not that reliable. Let's just rely on all the masses of DNA evidence. And also the gun thing. Didn't he stole a gun from someone? Like, come on. Lara reinforced his argument by referencing existing research that had documented similar phenomena regarding the potential impact of hypnosis on memories. Additionally, Robinson's defense team had not been informed of these hypnotic sessions, denying them the opportunity to independently assess Denise Sam Cowley's mental state during the process. They contended that Sam Cowley had initially identified another individual as the assailant in her assault and had even harbored suspicions about a former employee being responsible for the attack. 
Following the hearing, as Lauer and his legal team were departing, friends and family of Denise Sam Kelly confronted them, resorting to verbal attacks and name-calling. Lauer believed that this reaction stemmed from their concern that his arguments might potentially lead to the overturning of Robinson's convictions. During the court proceedings, some members of Sam Kelly's family were even asked to leave the room. Journalist Ron Devlin from the Morning Call newspaper reported that Sam Kelly herself had shouted insults at Robinson and his family. However, despite this aggrieved behavior, it had no impact on the legal proceedings, and the judge recognized recognize the need for a meticulous examination of the legal options available. I don't care about any of this. I'm like, the DNA is enough. If this was happening today, it'd be just like, eh, DNA, just do, do we even need to bother with the eyewitnesses? We got the DNA. Jerry, do you understand DNA? Yes, you idiot. We understand DNA. We've seen CSI. Let's go. Robinson's defense persisted in raising additional concerns, notably allegations of a racially biased jury selection process that hinged solely on whether potential jurors possessed a driver's license. Oh, I realize I had no idea what race Robinson is. They also continued to question the decision to try all three murders together and the refusal of a change in venue. In a startling turn of events, on November the 24th, Robinson himself unexpectedly took the stand to testify, surprising nearly everyone involved in the proceedings. At the age of 23, a full five years after the conclusion of the murders, Robinson delivered his testimony before an audience of approximately 30 individuals. During his testimony, he passionately denied any involvement in the murders and expressed remorse for not proclaiming his innocence during the original trial. While he spoke, bro, there is so much evidence against you. While he spoke, Judge Edward Reibman found it necessary to caution the spectators, reminding them to conduct themselves appropriately and maintain silence. This admonition was a clear reference to the previous instances of taunts and insults. The judge addressed the assembled audience, stating, The court will not tolerate any disruptions in the courtroom, nor will it tolerate any taunts addressed to any officers of the court. Please stay within the boundaries of civilized society and civilized behavior, and allow this system to run its course. During his three-hour testimony, Robinson shifted blame onto his former attorneys for the outcome of his previous trial. He contended that he had furnished his defense team with a list of numerous individuals who could have supported his alibis for the times when the victims were killed. These potential witnesses encompassed friends, coaches, teachers, and family members who could have attested to his activities and character. However, he pointed out that his attorneys had neglected to summon any alibi witnesses and had only presented a limited number of character witnesses. Robinson went on to assert that his legal team had neglected to inform him about the most effective defense strategy and had failed to use information about his upbringing that might have swayed the jury in his favor. Essentially, he pursued one of three potential outcomes, having his sentences overturned, securing a new trial, or, in a more ambitious endeavor, having the charges dropped entirely and his convictions expunged. Mate, why? <laughs> this is not going to happen. During the proceedings, Lau posed a direct question to Robinson, asking if he'd committed the murders. Robinson responded with a resolute denial, eliciting audible expressions of disgust from the victim's relatives in attendance. Well, I mean, what do you expect? <laughs> He's already been sentenced to death, trying one way. Yes, it's disgusting, but it shouldn't be like, oh my god, what? It's like, well, yeah, of course. Like, if you don't want to hear that, don't be there. Robinson's mother was present in the back of the room and exchanged a smile with her during the hearing. Nevertheless, apart from this interaction, Robinson remained emotionally detached throughout his testimony. He spoke so softly that he had to be asked to repeat himself on multiple occasions. Following this, Robinson informed Judge Reibman that his previous reluctance to testify had been motivated by his apprehension regarding questions about the sexual assault of Sam Callie. He clarified, I was under the impression that if I did testify, then my past record would be admissible. Prosecutor Jacqueline Paradis challenged Robinson's rationale, underscoring the gravity of a situation where his life hung in the balance. She queried how he could have failed to comprehend the importance of that decision. Robinson's response was straightforward. He stated that he hadn't regarded it as significant at the time. 
Former defense attorney Burke testified and challenged Robinson's claim concerning the defense strategy. He reiterated that he and his team had strongly urged Robinson to testify both during the trial and at his sentencing. While recognizing the limited availability of witnesses, he insisted that the decisions were made in Robinson's best interest at that time. Burke acknowledged that extensive efforts were undertaken to reach out to numerous potential witnesses. However, he asserted that many of them either appeared to pose a potential threat to the case or flatly declined to testify. He concluded by emphasizing that Robinson's reluctance to cooperate stemmed from a broader distrust of lawyers, including those genuinely seeking to assist him. Bro, your lawyers, if they're not helping you, that is a huge, like, ethical breach. So, like, they're the one person you have to trust. You really do. Robinson concurred with this assessment, attributing his distrust to the circumstances surrounding the Sam Cali assault case. He asserted that he had been pressured into pleading guilty by his attorney during the incident. After thorough deliberation, the court determined that Robinson's legal team had acted in his best interests to the best of their abilities. Consequently, they rejected the plea for a new trial. Nevertheless, it is essential to highlight that subsequent developments would influence his case. In 2001, Judge Reedman made the decision to overturn the death sentences for the murder of Burhardt and Schmoyer. He attributed this decision to the absence of clear definition in the jury instructions regarding the aggravated circumstances of multiple murder. Consequently, Robinson was granted a new sentencing hearing pending the prosecutor's decision to pursue this course of action. In December 2005, four years after the initial verdict, Pennsylvania upheld the death sentence for both Fortney conviction and the first-degree murder convictions in the other two cases. The court maintained that despite Robinson's claim that his attorney had not effectively presented mitigating circumstances, the jury had indeed considered reasons against imposing the death penalty before reaching their ultimate decision. Likewise, the higher court dismissed the argument that the prosecutor unfairly portrayed Robinson as a predator and rejected the claim of racial bias by the jury. District Attorney Steinberg characterization was deemed appropriate given Robinson's consistent pattern of targeting a specific type of victim within a defined geographic area. On March 1, 2006, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a ruling that individuals who were 17 years old or younger at the time of the crime were ineligible for the death penalty. This ruling had specific implications for Robinson, as it meant he could not be sentenced to death for the Burkhart murder, which occurred when he was 17. However, Judge Reedman had already overturned that sentence, and consequently, the ruling prevented the Lehigh County District Attorney from reopening that particular case. The district attorney remained committed to pursuing a new hearing for the Schmoyer case, but as of the last update in September 2021, such a hearing had not taken place. Robinson's appeal for the death penalty to the Supreme Court was denied in October 2005. In February of the following year, Pennsylvania Governor Ed Rendell signed a death warrant, scheduling an execution date for the April the 4th of 2006. It's 2023! And he's still alive? What? Nevertheless, this execution was postponed due to ongoing federal appeals working their way through the legal system. This situation remains uncertain and is the subject of ongoing legal processes as of the latest information available. In the most recent update, as of October 2019, Robinson appeared in court for a resentencing hearing related to his initial murder conviction. This legal issue arose from a 2012 ruling that deemed automatic life sentences for juvenile offenders unconstitutional. As a result, the life sentence he had initially received for this particular murder, which took place when he was 17 years old, was revised. The new sentence was adjusted to a range of 35 years to life, aligning with the evolving legal stance on sentencing individuals who committed crimes as juveniles. Yeah, fair. I think that's a good development of the law, that people who are 17 shouldn't be able to be sentenced to death for crimes they committed when they were not an adult. That seems fine with me, but the fact is, he committed crimes when he was an adult. Finally, to cap off this episode, I want to include an especially twisted quote from our serial killer. Life is so truly precious, so anything I can do for another is something I'm interested in and like. <laughs> it's an eloquent quote there. 
Now, all that being done, I'd like to leave our viewers with the name, not the names of the killer, but the names of the victims. Joan Mary Burkhardt, Charlotte Smyre, Jessica Jean Fortney, and finally, two would-be victims, Leslie Gerhardt and the five-year-old girl. Dismembered Appendices Robinson's activities from prison in Waynesburg, where he seeks pen pals on prisoner websites, present a rather disconcerting contrast to his past actions. In his online profiles, he expresses interests in exercise, writing, music, and self-help books, along with a desire to offer assistance to others. He has expressed feelings of abandonment by many of his family and friends. Yeah, they, they abandoned you because you murder people and are in prison. You know, that's what happens when you go to prison for murder. The quote above was excerpted from one of his posts on these websites, providing a glimpse into his unconventional online persona, considering his history of violent crimes. Throughout his high school years, Robinson was actively involved in a range of sports activities. He contributed his skills to the wrestling team and also took part in cross-country, soccer, and football, amassing a collection of trophies in recognition of his athletic achievements. Despite encountering occasional behavioral challenges, he consistently demonstrated academic excellence and garnered accolades for his writing talents. A number of his educators believed that with substantial support and encouragement, he harbored the potential for a bright future. This stands in contrast to the troubling path that his life eventually took. Judge Riemann's suggestion that Robinson contemplate donating his brain for scientific research after his passing holds great significance. Although the court cannot mandate it as a formal order, this gesture could offer invaluable insights into comprehending the behavior of individuals like Robinson, particularly given the rarity of serial killers. Robinson, a devoted follower of the Muslim faith, has expressed a willingness to consider this option, provided it aligns with his religious beliefs. His defense attorney has also endorsed the idea, recognizing its potential to enhance the scientific community's understanding of such intricate cases. And that is where we leave today's episode. It's quite an open and shut one, isn't it? I was just like, from day one, it's like, okay, this guy seems extremely guilty, he's committed some horrible crimes, and he gets the death penalty, which somehow still hasn't been put forth, even though it's like 20-something years later. Anyway, that's where we leave it today. Thank you for being here. Please leave a review of this show if you like it. Uh, if you're listening as a podcast, if you're on YouTube, like, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.